2006, the United States Army deployed what's called a Wide Area Motion Imagery System, sometimes called a WAMI, on some of its manned reconnaissance aircraft flying in Iraq and Afghanistan. This WAMI, called Constant Hawk, allowed the Army to test the more fundamental concept out to see if it would help them detect enemy ambushes and improvised explosive devices two things that were causing the army a great deal of trouble at the time, increasing the duration of what was supposed to be a relatively short conflict. To achieve this goal, the Constant Hawk leveraged a 96-megapixel camera alongside a supplementary sensor suite that refined the images captured with that camera, making them clearer. It also contained software that detected changes in patterns within the collected imagery. Specifically, it allowed the camera to capture snapshots of part of a city or region over time to assess the normal order of things, and then to note when something seemed to disrupt that order. This information was flagged, with photos showing the seemingly out-of-place object or pattern disruptor sent to intelligence officers who would then determine if the weirdness was indicative of some kind of explosive, of a base of enemy combatants, or something else. Maybe even just a glitch, or something the software would have no reason to know is normal, like a civilian taking a different route to work because of a road closure. Constant Hawk was successful enough that it eventually, after a few years in the field, evolved into another project called Kestrel. Made by the same company as the previous iteration, Logos Technologies, Kestrel was an upgrade to the Constant Hawk, replacing the single 96-megapixel camera with six cameras tucked inside a gimbal, a container that allows the cameras to rotate around an axis, which allowed the device, if perched suitably high up, like on a plane or drone, to map out an entire city-sized area in medium resolution. Two other Whammy-style devices were developed and tested around this same time, shortly after the Kestrel was deployed in the field. Gorgon Stare was a device small enough to be mounted on most unmanned drones, and it was intended to operate almost entirely human-free, collecting not-quite-video, something called motion imagery, which basically meant several photos per second, which then looked like a choppy video if you viewed them chronologically. It could capture that kind of choppy video of a whole city persistently over time, a concept often referred to as Wide Area Persistent Surveillance, or WAPS. Gorgon Stare was deployed beginning in 2009, and in 2010, a similar project with similar goals called Argus IS, which was developed by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, was put through its paces. This variation on that theme made use of 368 cell phone quality cameras, each 5 megapixels strong, along with four different lenses. This array of cameras and lenses combined with two processing subsystems, one in the air with the device and one on the ground, allowed for the capture of 1.8 exabytes of HD video per day. An exabyte is 1 million terabytes, or 1 billion gigabytes. That is a lot of video. But the reason it could collect so much video in such a short period 
is that it was meant to collect video all the time, to watch an area constantly, persistently, and then to notice trends, to see patterns, and importantly, to track anomalies in those patterns over a period of days, weeks, or months. The Argus IS did better in the field than Gorgon Stare, which, despite having some advantages over the Argus IS, had a bunch of glitches and was limited by the choppiness of that pseudo-video that it collected. Gorgon Stare Increment 2, the second generation of the device, was declared operational in mid-2014, and it borrowed quite a bit from the Argus IS. This new Gorgon Stare model had 368 5-megapixel cameras in an array, the video collected was of a higher quality than before, and it was able to attain a fourfold increase in coverage and twice the image resolution. It could previously watch an area of 16 square kilometers, which is about 6.2 square miles, but this new version could watch an area of 100 square kilometers, or about 39 square miles. And remember, this is an area that this device is watching constantly, all the time. It's tracking all of the objects in its field of view, and its software, and in some cases human operators, are adding metadata and tags, identifying locations and moving objects, tracking them over time, seeing where they go and what they do, trying to figure out if they're up to something, if they're interconnected, or if they represent some important component of the everyday rhythm of the region, and thus can safely be ignored. As of 2015, all previous versions of Gorgon Stare have been replaced with this updated, far more capable version, and it's been reported in a nature piece summarizing a 2019 book on the development of the Gorgon Stare program, entitled Eyes in the Sky, that the next step is to add infrared imaging to this surveillance technology's capabilities, allowing it to see people within their homes and other buildings, not just out on the streets, where it has direct line of sight dramatically increasing its capabilities and potential use cases even further. What I'd like to talk about today is another type of wide-area persistent surveillance that was not developed by the military and that is not being used in war zones. It's a piece of tech gadgetry that there's a good chance you or someone you know owns, or will soon own, and one that has been brought to market with a great deal of sales potential, but which has also attracted a great deal of concern. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. By raw numbers, China has, by far, the greatest number of active public surveillance cameras in the world. Of course, China also has an absolutely massive population, so the fact that the Chinese city of Shenzhen has nearly 2 million cameras and the United States city of Atlanta has just under 8,000 cameras is not super useful as it's kind of like comparing tiny little apples to giant planet-sized oranges. Moderately more useful when trying to gauge surveillance equipment density based on the population of a city is to divide the total number of cameras by the number of people in the area, which is what researchers at a tech-focused research company called Comparatech did recently. And though by their own admission their methodology has holes, they could not include private CCTV cameras, for instance, the data is still quite illuminating. And CCTV, by the way, means closed-circuit television. It refers to cameras that transmit a signal from one place to another specific place, usually a monitor or some kind of recording medium. 
So most security cameras, in public or placed somewhere on a private property, is some kind of CCTV camera. Now that caveat about the flaws in this research in mind, the numbers presented almost certainly get us somewhere in the neighborhood of reality, even if there are quibbles to be had about these specifics. And it indicates that the most surveillance-dense cities in the world are in China, perhaps not surprisingly, based on their government and economic models, which require top-down control for many aspects of society, including the market, and because they've emerged as a global tech-building powerhouse. And as such, they can make and deploy such equipment relatively inexpensively compared to other nations that lack those manufacturing-related advantages. There are two non-Chinese cities in the top 10 most security camera-dense cities in the world list, however. Coming in at number 6 is London in the UK, and coming in at number 10 is Atlanta, Georgia in the United States. London, by this 2019 meta-analysis estimation at least, has just under 630,000 public CCTV cameras in use. The city has a little over 9 million people in residence, which means there are about 68 going on 69 cameras per 1,000 residents in London. Which, if you've paid attention to London's deployment of such technologies, probably isn't too surprising to you. It's a heavily surveilled city, and it has a thriving and well-trafficked subway system, which all by itself contains a great many of those cameras. The oddball on this list is Atlanta in the United States, which as I mentioned before only has about 7,800 public cameras in use. The reason it makes the top 10 list is that those not quite 8,000 cameras are watching just over half a million people, which means that there are 15 and a half cameras for every 1,000 people, which is a very high camera to people ratio compared to other cities around the world. For comparison's sake, Moscow has about 11.7 cameras per 1,000 people. New Delhi has about 9.6. Washington, D.C. has about 5.6. And Toronto, in Canada, has a mere 2.4 cameras per 1,000 people. And just as a reminder, that's compared to 15.5 for Atlanta and around 68 for London. Shenzhen and Shanghai, both in China, have 159 and 113.5 cameras per 1,000 people respectively. And at the very top of the list is Chongqing, also in China, with a whopping 168 cameras per thousand people installed around the city. Again, these data points are aggregations of publicly available figures about in-use CCTV surveillance cameras. So it's government-run hardware, usually installed to help the police to retrospectively show who crashed into whom, to catch people who run red lights, and to casually threaten people into behaving in public spaces, the threat being we're watching. And if you do something wrong, we will have a record of it somewhere, maybe forever. A couple more quick points about this data. First, is that there doesn't seem to be any correlation between the number of cameras or the camera density in a city and that city's crime rate or the perception of safety in that city, its safety index. So there are cities with tons of cameras and low crime, but a high perception of criminality. There are cities with tons of cameras and high crime and a low perception of criminality. There are cities with few cameras and low crime, few cameras and high crime, and perceptions of safety all over the map. 
This means that while such cameras almost certainly help law enforcement in many ways, and almost certainly provide other benefits, like giving citizens a soft nudge toward not committing certain types of crime in certain camera-covered areas, they're not a silver bullet, either in raw crime prevention or in making people feel safer. Sometimes they are part of that, but sometimes they are not. There is no direct line between these different variables. And second, these cameras are very often just one part of a larger surveillance and security apparatus, meaning that unto themselves, without additional equipment and software and groups of people to manage these networks, they're just cameras pointed at public spaces, endlessly recording but not doing anything useful with those recordings. China's plans, according to CCTV industry experts and insiders interviewed for a piece in Business Insider, include upping their number of public cameras in some cities by over 1,000% by 2022, a number that is astonishing, but also aligned with their ambition and the necessity for stability if they're going to survive the purported economic slump that they may experience sometime in the near future. For the record, though, other claims made through official Chinese government channels place that increase at something closer to 200%. Now, related to that larger increase claim from the Comparatech report, quote, the city of Shenzhen plans to have 16,680,000 cameras installed in the coming years, a 1,145% increase over today's figure of approximately 1,929,600 cameras. If the whole of China increased the number of CCTV cameras by 1,145%, that would mean a total of 2.29 billion cameras, just less than two cameras per person, end quote. Coupled with the fact that most of China's camera infrastructure is plugged into their larger surveillance network, which allows them to do lightning-fast, on-the-fly facial recognition and profiling of people as they walk by cameras, even when they're part of a crowd, this paints a fairly clear picture of what the Chinese government may have in mind for the coming years in terms of keeping people in line and keeping things orderly. It is somewhat less clear what the United Kingdom intends in the heavily surveilled city of London, but a recent installation of facial recognition utilizing surveillance cameras in the King's Cross area in a 67-acre plot of land north of the train station that includes a shopping center, restaurants and bars, private homes, Google's local headquarters, and a university for the arts, Central St. Martin's, may demonstrate that purpose for us at some point in the future. The company that owns this area, Argent, released a statement about the technology when it came to light that they'd had it installed, saying, quote, we use cameras around the site, as do many other developments and shopping centers, as well as transport nodes, sports clubs, and other areas where large numbers of people gather. These cameras use a number of detection and tracking methods, including facial recognition, but also have sophisticated systems in place to protect the privacy of the general public. End quote. They did not say in the release, or after being asked by the press subsequently, what these systems entail how many of them are in place, how the data collected is being used, or what company is supplying these devices and the software. A private development in London's former dock area, Canary Wharf, is also reportedly considering using facial recognition technology to enhance security thereabouts, though there's a chance that the recent hullabaloo about the issue, championed by the mayor of London and several privacy-focused interest groups, 
may turn them off of the idea before they do anything more than wonder about its potential. As interesting as the world of public CCTV infrastructure can be, though, the article I'd like to unspool today addresses an entirely different segment of the market, and one that is growing very rapidly, especially in the United States. This piece comes from The Guardian, and it's entitled, Amazon's Doorbell Camera Ring is Working with Police and Controlling What They Say. Ring was founded in 2013, though back then it was called Doorbot, and its initial investment came in via crowdfunding. That effort netted the founder, Jamie Simonoff, $364,000 to build the company. That same year, Doorbot was featured on the reality TV show Shark Tank, a show in which investors listen to pitches from inventors and business owners, and then either make or do not make investment offers. And Simonoff was made an offer on the show, but declined it. Being on the show, though, netted him and Doorbot a good amount of attention. So he rebranded after the appearance, renamed his smart doorbell product Ring, and netted about $5 million in sales, not long after his episode went live. A few years later, in 2016, former basketball star Shaquille O'Neal bought into the business and then became the company's spokesperson. That was followed by a major investment from Goldman Sachs, along with also quite significant investments from Richard Branson of Virgin Group fame, venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins Caulfield Byers, and tech company investment wing Qualcomm Ventures, among others. In early 2018, Ring was acquired by Amazon for what analysts suspect was somewhere between $1.2 and $1.8 billion, and early best bets assumed this acquisition was part of Amazon's play to get customers to allow delivery people to leave packages inside their homes. The thinking was that smart doorbells would be part of the smart security system that would allow folks to see the Amazon delivery person arrive at their home during the day via their smartphone wherever they themselves happened to be. And they could then, through that app, let the delivery person inside. Or they could set it up so that the delivery person is let in automatically by the smart lock attached to their smart doorbell. The delivery person could then leave the packages inside the recipient's home when the recipient is not there, and the door would then lock behind them, solving the issue of packages being stolen from front porches, which is a consistent, difficult-to-solve issue in some areas. Ring is not the only entity operating in this space, though it did have an estimated 97% of the market as recently as 2018. That is a number that has almost certainly changed in the time since, though, as dozens of other big-name brands have moved into this space, and other big players like the Google-owned Nest Hello and August Home smart lock accompanying doorbell system have reportedly increased their own market share during that period. There are also countless knockoffs and no-name producers making their own, infinitely cheaper versions of this pseudo-commoditized device, lacking a lot of the polish of brand-name offerings, but capturing the lower end of the market that has emerged as the mid- and high-ends have become more saturated. That said, because of its vassalization to Amazon, and because of some smart business decisions that it made, Ring is still, despite all that competition, the brand to beat within the smart camera-enabled doorbell space. And that is part of why some recent moves that they have made have been so alarming to many privacy advocates and civil rights organizations. 
That Guardian story focuses on a revelation unearthed and reported upon by Motherboard in July of 2019. What they discovered was that Ring had partnered with a police department in Lakeland, Florida, giving the police officers certain privileges in exchange for them recommending the Ring doorbell and associated services to folks in their community. Part of this tit-for-tat setup relied on an app built and operated by Ring called Neighbors, which is a bit like the local community app Next Door, in that you can engage with other people in your community, but it's different in that it has built-in tools that allow you to upload video from your video doorbell, be it a Ring device or a device from another company, to share crimes or potential crimes or people who you think might commit crimes with other people who are using the app nearby. One of the powers vested in the police who play ball with Ring is to be given special privileges within this community, including the ability to do a megaphone blast type post requesting information and videos from people in a particular area on a particular date at a particular time. So for instance, if the police were looking for information on a trio of young men who stole a car and they knew roughly when the theft took place and they knew where the car was parked, or where it ended up, they could request a video from people whose homes might be somewhere along the car's route, or where it was stolen, and people in the Ring network could then choose to give them the video from their smart doorbells, or not. Further investigations by several other journalistic entities led to the discovery, and eventual admission from the company, that Ring has created this type of relationship with over 400 police forces around the United States. And in many of these areas, Ring offers local law enforcement entities incentives to get more people to buy Ring devices, including, in some cases, Ring credits for every doorbell that they sell to a local. And in some cases, they just donate a bunch of smart doorbells for the police department to give away or to raffle off. Awkward for the company, though. It's been revealed that Ring marketing and PR people have been guiding these police officers' hands, sending them instructions about how to be better salespeople for the devices, even going so far as to provide edits on press releases about the Ring distribution programs. The police would prepare a press release for the local papers about their relationship with the company, and the company would then heavily edit that press release and send it back to the cops, dashing out things that they didn't think would work, that wouldn't align with company talking points, and inserting their own PR-approved talking points, and little dodges for awkward questions and criticisms that might arise. And most of those changes then made it into the final document before it was sent out by these police forces. There are multiple levels to this story. And I think it's important to say up front that although there are some components of these relationships between Ring and the police forces that are probably morally questionable by most standards, there are other aspects of it that are not as clean-cut as one side or the other would have you believe. For instance, there's the question of warrants. Typically, if they wanted to get their hands on media, like videos captured on smart doorbell security cameras, police officers would need to go through a somewhat cumbersome warrant process, which would include, at some point along the way, justifying why they need that video and how it will help their case to ensure that they are getting exactly what they need and no more than that. This ring-centric relationship shortcuts that process by giving officers a simple tool that allows them to send a message to people along the relevant route or in the potentially relevant area who might have information about the crime or potential crime along with a button 
that residents can click, which gives officers permission to look at the videos recorded on their device from that date and time. A far simpler process. Doorbell owners have the ability to say no, and they have the ability to take a look at the videos in question before the cops see them. But it's the bypassing of bureaucracy that has some people anxious about this capability. There are good arguments for streamlining the crime-fighting process, but there are also good arguments for slowing it down, especially if speeding it up creates the possibility of privacy violations, as is potentially the case with footage shot from a camera looking out into the world from a front or back door, capturing absolutely everything that happens in the street or sidewalk or yard within that camera's range. So maybe you, the owner of the camera, gave your permission for that video to be seen by law enforcement. But did the people caught in the footage captured by that camera have the opportunity to do the same? No, they did not. At the same time, though, there are already numerous examples of crimes being solved, bad guys being caught because of these devices and their accompanying app, which allows officers to access this information in this far more concise and streamlined way. It's a very gray area, and it requires that an individual's or many individuals' privacy, along with perhaps important bureaucratic steps, are exchanged for maybe faster, maybe better crime-fighting capabilities. From a piece published in the magazine Fast Company on this issue, quote, Even as crime rates hit record lows, Ring has convinced millions of people to surveil their property through doorbell cameras, and it's now helping police departments around the country ask residents for warrantless access to the footage. Meanwhile, Ring's Neighbors app provides an open forum in which people can discuss threats, both real and perceived, in their communities, risking heightened paranoia over whatever their cameras are dredging up." End quote. That brings us to another pro-con aspect of this story. While on one hand, this app and accompanying device can help people become more engaged within their community and can help them play a role in ameliorating the negative aspects of their neighborhood, it can also lead to the opposite. People feeling increasingly hyper-aware and worried, convinced that there's a ton of crime happening around them all the time, and that anyone who looks or behaves or seems different from them might be up to something, might be a suspicious character that they should report that they should record, and that they should post images and video of on this app. In that piece in The Guardian, Andrew Ferguson, a law professor and the author of a book called The Rise of Big Data Policing, said, in regard to the language Ring employees encourage police to use when promoting the doorbell and app to citizens, quote, The purpose for this type of commentary is to fuel a narrative that these devices are effective in stopping crime, that there is a high rate of crime, and thus people need these devices. And police support a particular brand of camera over other brands of camera. All of those are questionable choices for a public safety organization that should have a primary purpose of serving public safety and not corporate marketing. End quote. Matt Cagle, a technology and civil liberties attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union, agreed, saying, quote, It is shocking to see a private corporation dictating what public officials will say to community members about public safety issues. Ring answers to Amazon shareholders, and police are supposed to answer to the public. That is the core tension in these relationships, end quote. He added that such interactions, quote, undermine public trust in law enforcement, end quote. Ferguson felt the same as Cagle about that aspect of the story, saying, quote, 
police should not have dual loyalty to a private company and the public. Their loyalty should be to the public. Any sort of blurring of that line causes us to question that loyalty, end quote. So part of the issue here is that people are being sold on the idea of borderline militarization of their home by police. Police who are being incentivized to say that such militarization is necessary by ring marketing professionals. And it should be noted that as they're being encouraged to at least imply, and in some cases outright say to citizens, that crime levels are at an all-time high, that statement is not backed up by the data. In most of these areas, crime is actually at an all-time low. But cops are being told that they should play up the scariness factor, make these people think that there's a lot of bad stuff happening right now in their neighborhood, right outside their door, and that they will be both protecting themselves and protecting their neighbors if they buy and install these devices. You can get a lot of people to do a lot of nonsensical things if you can make them scared enough. And remember, police departments are being incentivized to behave in this way by the promise of what amounts to affiliate payments from the company for each device that they sell, free products based on their local sales, but also, most compellingly, by the promise of access to all that warrant-free evidence that is captured by this always-on network of security cameras. The levels of Rancor on the Neighbors app is not noticeably worse, and is actually probably, anecdotally at least, a little bit better than on similar apps like Nextdoor, which is notorious for hosting the most paranoid, prejudiced outpourings from scared homeowners convinced that teenagers walking home from school along their street are actually a gang that's going to tear the neighborhood apart. That this app can elevate a bunker mentality, making everyone involved feel like part of a local militia, is a potentially serious issue. But it's probably not the most alarming one. And again, it's not something that is exclusive to just them and their app. The main issues tie back to that high-quality video camera array, which replicates, when enough of these devices are installed, a decent-quality wide-area persistent surveillance network, which, if you recall from the intro, is what militaries currently install in areas in which they are hunting for enemy combatants and improvised explosive devices which Amazon, through their subsidiary company Ring, is helping police departments build throughout the United States in everyday non-war zone neighborhoods. Which, arguably, is not the end of the world. Arguably, having this kind of surveillance in place could legitimately help prevent horrible things from happening. If someone is victimized, is robbed or mugged or attacked, is sexually assaulted, is murdered, is kidnapped, or if someone graffitis something terrible on your garage, or steals your car, or sets fire to the house across the street, aren't we better off for having evidence of who the perpetrator is? Isn't it better to have video evidence? The higher the quality, the better, so that we are not relying on our immensely fallible memories and our propensity to imbue stressful situations with false details when we are trying to relate to authorities who did it. Let's ask that same question again about the same situation, but with a small tweak. What if we have a wide area persistent surveillance network made up of an array of these home security products, smart doorbells, CCTV cameras, and other over-the-counter gadgets of that sort, but the information being collected, the video, the images, the metadata, like location, are all being fed to software, similar to the kind used by the military to look for patterns and irregularities within those patterns. What if, for instance, 
All of these devices are watching and watching and watching, and one day you are flagged by this software for deviating from your schedule, and the cops visit your house to see what's up, following up on that lead that they were given by this network. Just knowing that you are being watched, that your actions are being documented, might incentivize you to avoid doing anything that could be perceived as abnormal, according to what you think might be perceived as such to others, other human beings, but also to algorithms, software that is watching and trying to parse what you are up to and looking for meaning in your every twitch, in your every behavior. I think there's a good chance that knowing these systems are in place, especially in our neighborhoods, in places where we live, where we should be free to be our abnormal selves, knowing they are there would nudge us toward becoming cookie-cutter versions of ourselves, incentivized to behave normally, according to our previously recorded standard for that term, lest we bring the police to our door and earn the suspicion of our app-happy neighbors. Of course, it's possible to acknowledge that possibility and decide that it's worth the trade-off. That feeling a little bit weird about being watched and knowing that you could be visited by the cops or watched extra special closely by your neighbors for a while, if you decide to change the color palette of your wardrobe or take a different route to work for a day, is okay. You may decide that such inconveniences are suitable payment for the benefits of all those eyes, human and otherwise, watching all day and night for anything that might cause you harm. I suspect all kinds of variables influence our perception when it comes to this kind of exchange. Your perceived likelihood of an encounter with police going well or not so well, for instance, could tweak the math away from the sum that someone who's never had any problems with a cop would arrive at. It also may be that those who have been victimized in the past, either physically or psychologically, have had someone break into their home, touch their things, invade their personal space. It's possible that they could have a different response, do different math, than someone who has never had similar experiences, and for whom the concept of such crimes is purely theoretical. Adding another variable to the mix, what if this array were suddenly facial recognition enabled, which would allow all the people showing up on any of these cameras to be tracked all day every day by software? Metadata would be added to each individual, and the computers would therefore be able to track us around the real world, around our neighborhoods, maybe even inside our homes just like we are tracked around the internet. Meaning, attached to all of our actions, how we move, our facial expressions, who we speak to or do not speak to, all of this information constantly collected and added to a dossier about us, which would be, like these videos, ostensibly safe and protected and accessible only by us, but which could, under certain circumstances, be shared with authorities, with cops, with judges, maybe with hackers, who gain access to this information illegally. It turns out that that last bit is not as unlikely as it might initially seem. Earlier in 2019, it was reported by The Intercept that Ring was storing all of the video recordings from their devices, collected by these smart doorbell cameras around the world, in such a way that people in two of their offices had access to those videos. It was also revealed that they were storing this video data unencrypted, which means if hackers managed to find the right databases, or somebody working at one of those offices happened to open the right file, they would be able to view the videos without any trouble. Alongside that, in mid-2019, Ring started making advertisements using videos shot on Ring devices, pointing at the company's terms of service when they were asked about the legitimacy and legality 
of this tactic. Their terms of service say that they have the irrevocable, unlimited, and royalty-free license to use content shared on the Neighbors app however they like, wherever they like, and without paying users' compensation for doing so. This is sort of wild because it has resulted in the company sharing videos widely of people on their users' front porches, and owners of those front porches would not know that their videos were being used in this way. And the supposed criminals, labeled as such by Ring and Amazon, not by law enforcement, have been just as out of the loop about being shown in this online context, being made famous as thieves or dangerous people, and they've been labeled this way without first going through the typical necessary process of legally determining innocence or guilt. In addition to being kind of weird and uncomfortable all unto itself, these advertisements also indicate that Ring believes that they can use these videos for whatever they like, including for things like training facial recognition software, something that Amazon, their parent company, has spent a vast fortune doing, and from which Ring would benefit greatly, as it would allow them to more accurately and automatically identify known criminals who are walking up to someone's door or maybe just walking past their home on the street, which would then allow Ring to send the homeowner a warning message about this person being in their area, and would allow them to call the cops without having to get any human intermediaries involved along the way. This would be a very interesting selling point for the service and the product, both for potential Ring customers and for local law enforcement officers who would be further incentivized to flog these products to those who live within their region. The more people who have these cameras, the more valuable that network of surveillance cameras becomes. It was also recently reported by CNET that when users give their local police permission to use their videos to catch criminals, those videos might also end up in the hands of some other government agency. So your footage could change hands many times potentially, ending up in the vaults of immigration agencies or even private companies that make a deal with local law enforcement to access their resources for some purpose or another. Now again, in some ways this is a very cool idea and would be very beneficial for certain aspects of what we try to achieve within a law-abiding society. But it's also a path that is riddled with pit traps, as there are all kinds of abuses that become possible as soon as this type of information is put into the hands of a company as big and powerful as Amazon, especially when local law enforcement has been incentivized to help them spread their tendrils ever further, because this consumer product company helps them do their jobs better and more efficiently, at least by some metrics. China is building out their facial recognition software at a breakneck pace because it allows them to keep order and punish anyone who steps out of line. It gives the people at the top more control. And though it no doubt prevents a great deal of crime, at least certain types of crime in certain places, it also crushes certain types of expression and novelty and coloring outside the lines thinking and behavior and yes, certain types of dissent. It's no wonder that governments around the world are going wild for these technologies, because it could allow them to fulfill their mandates more effectively. And at that macro scale, the people at the controls of these systems do not tend to worry about the muffling effect such surveillance arrays could have on personal freedom and individual privacy. Those are concerns that go out the window when you are tasked with preventing and solving crimes and managing the big picture. The larger scale, more vital seeming undertakings become the focus. 
and it comes to seem increasingly worthwhile to sacrifice certain individual liberties to achieve those goals. It's interesting that in the United States, and in many other countries with similar economies and corporate setups, we've landed on several of the same order-maintaining solutions, but deploy them in different ways compared to our more authoritarian neighbors. Rather than swathing a city in cameras from the top of the governmental pyramid, we're instead making those cameras available on the market, sold as home security consumer electronics, beautified and combined with the high-end branding and silky smooth services that we've come to associate with good quality, desirable personal electronics. I will be very curious to see what balance we strike with this, and if the balance is wildly or even just a little bit different from culture to culture, as we all struggle with the pros and the cons of the possibility of trading security for liberty and vice versa. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them by Jason Stanley. This is a book that's been on my list for a little while now. It has a lot of application to a lot of different subjects that I've been researching that I think about quite a bit, but most compelling to me was not necessarily the governmental aspects of fascism, the authoritarian component of that word, but rather the disposition of different tribes to become fascist or to take on fascistic traits when they are trying, with the best of intentions, to combat other tribes. And this is something that we see when it comes to politics, when it comes to religion, when it comes to governments, when it comes to things like nationalism. But it's really something that can be brought out in people who are otherwise not fascistic in any other way. When something that they believe in, some ideology that they hold, some label that they wear, is threatened, or they perceive that it's threatened, by somebody who has a different label, different ideology, different whatever. The book's subtitle, I think, really nails this concept, The Politics of Us and Them. And one of the most valuable things about this book, I think, is shining a light on the fact that we are very often manipulated by our desire to do well by standards that we hold dear because of certain groups that we belong to. I don't want to give away any more than that, but if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of How Fascism Works by Jason Stanley. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find me on social media at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.